This episode is brought to you by the Weather Channel app. Did you know the app can help you forecast more than just the weather? With allergy tracking and fluid mapping. So you know when to stay inside and load up on podcast, As well as air quality and UV indexing. So you know when to get outside, load up on sunscreen and podcast. Forecast more of what you love with the Weather Channel app. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Care Talk. My name is Laura Packard, and I am your host. I am also the founder of Healthcare Voices, and I'm a cancer survivor that has gone through the American healthcare system and had to fight insurance companies and everything along the way. And we are here to answer your healthcare and health insurance questions. So please call or text in your questions at 202 838 68 and we'll answer them in future episodes. And to start, we've got a question from Kristen, who says that I care about my autistic child. Wish the Congress people and uh, president would do more for the autistic community with our health insurance. Uh, so to talk more about what people or communities of people can do if they want insurance to cover more care, uh, welcome Zoid from Health Sherpa. Thanks, Laura. Um, I love this question. So Always when we talk about, um, you know, autism community and different discriminations they may face, I always recommend going to the Autism Self-Advocacy Network. Um, so that's a, an organization that's run by and for autistic people. Um, and they're really at the front lines looking at the issues that really affect the autistic community um, and what can be done about those issues. Um, healthcare is a, a big one. Um, you know, it's not just about what insurance will cover. There's also discrimination, such as getting an organ transplant. Folks with autism or other intellectual or developmental disabilities um, may be faced with discrimination when trying to get something as important as an organ transplant. Um, when it comes to what insurance will cover, um, so ASAN actually has a wonderful step-by-step uh, -step guide for getting coverage for autism-related services. It goes over common reasons that those services may be denied. One really common one is that insurance often only cover one type of service for autistic children, and it's typically ABA, which we've found in a lot of cases is not the appropriate therapy, um, but it's often the only one that insurance will cover. Um, but that guide that they have on their website, and we can um, link to it um, on our website, but the, their, their website is autismadvocacy.org. Um, that guide goes through um, how to send appeals to your insurance company and what steps to take. Um, and then, you know, so that's kind of on the individual basis. And as for as a big issue, trying to, you know, talk to politicians about making these changes, again, that same organization, um, I would take a look at their kind of action center and what they have going on because um, they're often um, fighting for those rights as well. Thank you, Zoid. And next we have a question from Sal who wants to know, since we have a government for the people, by the people, why not put healthcare up for a vote? My guess is universal healthcare would pass like most developed countries have. And to talk about that, welcome Diane Archer from Just Care and Social Security Works. Thank you, Laura. So um, great question, um, great thought. Uh, Sal is really right. If we put it up for a vote, poll after poll shows that we would have universal guaranteed affordable health care in the US. Both Democrats and Republicans support universal health care. 
um, by strong majorities. But unfortunately, Congress generally answers more to the powerful corporate lobbies uh, than to their own constituents. That keeps members from moving forward with guaranteed affordable health care for all. So it's going to take more than the public vote, which we have. It's going to take a lot of pressure on members to uh, listen to their constituents and not to the powerful. Thank you, Diane. Uh, the next question is uh, about how the public health emergency for COVID is now over, uh, but what happens now and how does this affect our health care? Zoid? Yeah, great question. Um, so the main change that's happening now because the public health emergency is ending is something that's called Medicaid unwinding. So during the pandemic, folks um, who were eligible for Medicaid just stayed on Medicaid and states were not doing their annual redeterminations where they double check income and everything to make sure folks are still eligible for Medicaid. They were just continuing to keep those folks on Medicaid um, because the government recognized that, you know, particularly this population of people is going to be um, vulnerable to changes in circumstances, changes in insurance. So they didn't want to have those gaps in coverage. Um, so now states have restarted those processes again. And so if you are currently on Medicaid, it's very important that you contact your Medicaid, your state Medicaid agency. Um, you can call them. They may also have an online portal that you can access. Make sure all of your income information is up to date. Make sure all of your contact information is up to date. And also let them know if um, you have access to other coverage now. Like, for example, if you've gotten a job since and that job offers you health care. Um, or health insurance. Um, so that is the the big one is to really make sure that if you're currently on Medicaid, you're taking those steps to either um, get taken off Medicaid if that's appropriate and transition to a different insurance. Um, or if you're still eligible for Medicaid, making sure that you stay on it. If you do lose Medicaid during this time and you're no longer eligible for it, there is a special enrollment period going on through the health insurance marketplace. So if you lose Medicaid coverage at any time um, between March 31st or next year, 2024, July 31st, um, you are eligible for the special enrollment period. So even if you um, don't, even if it's been more than 60 days, so say you don't find out that you lost Medicaid until September, but you actually lost it back in July, you'll still be okay to enroll through this um, special enrollment period um, because, you know, we're not sure how all states are doing in terms of communicating with everyone, um, and it's going to be a bit of a, a tricky process. Um, so there is that kind of open period where if you lose Medicaid, you can enroll. Um, also, you if you do have a job that's offering health insurance coverage, even if you missed your open enrollment period, um, losing other coverage is a special uh, is this qualifying life event that should allow you to then enroll through your jobs coverage. So definitely reach out to your HR department as well. About Thank you, Zoid. And our next question is from Louise, who wants to know when will the United States provide the type of health care that the other 36 or so industrialized nations give its citizens? Uh, Diane, what do you think? Well, for sure, it's time that the wealthiest, most powerful country in the world gave its citizens the guaranteed affordable health care dozens of other wealthy nations provide. So uh, totally with uh, we do have Senator Bernie Sanders and Congresswoman 
Jaipal and Deagle, leading bills, uh, just recently um, put forward this year and every year in the past several years for Medicare for All in both the House and the Senate. And that would give everyone in the U.S. the kind of health care that other people in other industrialized nations have. It would be an improved version of Medicare with uh, more benefits and without the premiums, deductibles, and copays that can keep people uh, from getting care because of the cost. Uh, there are more than 100 co-sponsors of this bill, which is really exciting, but it's unfortunately not enough uh, to pass Medicare for all. And to get that done to begin with, it seems that we're going to need a Democratic House and Senate, as well as a Democratic president uh, to pass that legislation. Republicans are still leaning more towards having people pay for their health care out of pocket, which is essentially a recipe for keeping literally tens of millions of people from getting needed health care since health care is so expensive. Um, and then we have, unfortunately, still a lot of pressure from corporate health insurers that are charging hefty premiums, deductibles, and co-pays, and still too often denying and delaying care routinely to keep the system just as it is, thank you very much, because that's how they profit. And Congress is doing little about that. So unfortunately, what we have in this country under our current system, even with most people with insurance, there's so much underinsurance, and then there still is some uninsurance that uh, people are dying and people are becoming disabled and they're going to medical debt and they're making choices between their health care and their rent and their health care and their dinner. And you would think that would be enough to move the whole Congress, uh, but unfortunately. So we will have to all keep contacting our members and urging them to focus on ways to guarantee health care for all and to support of the Medicare for all legislation in the House and the Senate. And I would urge all of our listeners to be contacting your members of Congress and expressing your support for guaranteed universal affordable health care for all in this country. Thank you, Diane. And Zoid, when does open enrollment start for health insurance through the ACA? And what should you do now if you don't have health insurance and open enrollment hasn't started yet? Yeah, so in most states, open enrollment will be starting on November 1st this year. Um, if you live in a state that it has a state-based marketplace, so it, rather than using healthcare.gov, they have their own website, such as Covered California, Get Covered NJ, um, then they may have a different start date. Um, but otherwise, you're looking at November 1st. If you don't currently have health coverage, um, there's a few things that you can do. So it's really important to see if you qualify for any special enrollment periods. I talked about with losing Medicaid, that's one. Losing any other coverage, you have 60 days um, of, of time to enroll in a, an ACA plan. Um, there are also year-round um, special enrollment situations. So if you are a member of a federally recognized tribe, you qualify for a monthly special enrollment period. If you fall in a certain income level um, under a hundred between about 100 and 150% of the federal poverty line, you also qualify um, or likely qualify for a special enrollment period. Um, so it's important to check that. You can go to healthcare.gov. You can also go to healthsherpa.com 
and um, run a quote to, and that'll give you kind of a list of what you might qualify for. And on, I know at least on healthstrip.com, we also check your income when you put that in to see if you qualify. Um, you can also work with an agent or broker or navigator in your area to see if you qualify. Um, otherwise, if you don't qualify for any special enrollment period um, and you're currently not covered, you know, unless you also unless you qualify for Medicaid, which is again also year round, um, then you may be waiting until November first. Thank you, Zoid. And next, I'd like to introduce our special guest for today. Gideon Lukens is a senior fellow and director of research and data analysis at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, and he'll be talking about the default crisis and what's at stake for our healthcare. Welcome, Gideon. Thank you. Happy to be on. Um, yeah, so what's happening is that we're uh, unfortunately fast approaching the debt ceiling, also known as a debt limit. Um, and this is something that Congress regularly raises to pay the government's bills. Uh, and these bills were incurred through prior spending and tax legislation. So um, it's an important point to remember that uh, deficits and debt are determined when Congress decides on fiscal policy. That includes tax policies uh, or appropriations bills. And that's not what's happening right now. Uh, right now, the debt ceiling is about whether the government pays for tax and spending decisions that Congress already ordered. It doesn't authorize any new spending. Uh, the debt ceiling has been raised uh, many times in the past, um, about 20 times in the past 20 years, I think, um, roughly. And um, unfortunately, right now, it's being used as an excuse by House Republicans to push massive spending cuts uh, to discretionary programs. So basically, um, House Republicans right now are, are negotiating with uh, the president and are threatening to allow the country to default, which um, economists have estimated would cost millions of jobs, um, over 7 million jobs, and plunge us into a recession um, unless the demands for these spending cuts are met. Um, so what are the demands? Um, well, the House bill would cut discretionary programs by $3.6 over the next decade. Uh, if that excludes defense, which many, um, many members have said it would, that would be equivalent to a 27% cut in 2024, rising up to a 49% cut by 2033. So that's cutting discretionary programs that includes, you know, Pell Grants, uh, child care, uh, cutting that uh, roughly in half by 2030. Um, in addition to these uh, draconian cuts, the House Republican bill also contains provisions that would uh, institute work reporting requirements in Medicaid, which have never been done uh, at the federal level, um, as well as expand work reporting requirements in SNAP. Uh, formerly known as food stamps and TANF, cash assistance. Specifically for Medicaid, the bill would take Medicaid coverage away from adults age 19 to 55 who do not qualify for an exemption and who do not document monthly work uh, of at least 80, 80 hours per month. Um, so the bottom line of these work reporting requirements is that um, first, it's a prob uh, solution in search of a problem. Almost all Medicaid enrollees are actually uh, working or would qualify for an exemption. Um, uh, number two, um, there, an abundance of research over the years has shown that the worker work reporting requirements don't actually have any impact on employment. And in fact, um, other research has shown that employment is aided when people have health coverage and the other support that they need. 
to find and maintain a job. And then um, number three, the one thing that work reporting requirements do do is make people lose coverage and mass. Um, the requirements in the House bill for Medicaid would put over 10 million enrollees at significant risk um, of losing coverage. And, um, you know, people who lose coverage, uh, research shows, have less access to care uh, and their health and their financial security uh, will suffer. Thank you. And so uh, these these work requirements, one of the problems is that they are, are just more hoops that people have to jump through, right? That if you're working multiple jobs, if you're caregiving, then you have to, uh, you know, call a number or find a form and you, you may not have good Wi-Fi if you're in a rural community. Like, how do you jump through these hoops to keep your care, even though you, you're eligible for it? It's just hard to get through the process, right? Is that why uh, tens of thousands of people lost their health care in Arkansas? Yeah, so that's exactly right. Um, so in Arkansas, what you saw was um, uh, this is Arkansas is the only state that had um, work reporting requirements long enough to actually take coverage away. From. Um, a couple of other states um, began implementing then, but, but their programs um, uh, stopped or were abandoned. Um, with Arkansas in 2018, in just seven months of having work reporting requirements that are very, very similar to the ones in the House bill, over 18,000 enrollees uh, lost coverage. That's one in four enrollees subject to the requirements. Um, and um, this is despite the fact that uh, uh, surveys have shown that uh, roughly 95% of these enrollees should have qualified for an exemption of the total en enrollees subject to the, the uh, requirements should have qualified for an exemption or were already working. So um, what you saw was widespread confusion. Other research has shown also in Arkansas, um, people didn't know the requirements, you know, who they applied to. The, um, uh, the red tape and bureaucracy was incredibly complex. Um, and so hardly anyone actually was able to successfully navigate the bureaucracy and and report uh, their hour. Um, so, um, and, and unless you think, you know, that Arkansas is an exception, it's, you saw a similar story in uh, New Hampshire and Michigan. Uh, the, these were states that started implementing work requirements, but then uh, didn't continue. So no one lost coverage. Um, but New Hampshire even had uh, kind of slogans and, uh, you know, that they are not Arkansas, that they're gonna do a better job. Um, but unfortunately, after only one month, two thirds of people who were subject to the requirements were set to lose coverage. In Michigan, you had similar numbers. One third of people subject to the requirements were set to lose coverage. So it's a it's an experiment that, you know, failed and can't really be fixed. Um, and so it's striking that the House bill actually is modeled after Arkansas so closely. Mm -hmm. So given that I think a recent study said 95% of people on Medicaid would still qualify, this is dumping a lot of money uh, into a solution that winds up taking people off of health care that should have had it all along. That's, that's right. Um, if you look at, uh, you know, large national surveys, um, and there's also the survey in Arkansas that I, I talked about, um, the large majority of Medicaid enrollees uh, are working. And those that aren't are almost all people who would qualify for an exemption. Um, people with disabilities, people uh, 
who are uh, students enrolled in, in educational organizations, um, parents of dependent children who are caretakers. Um, if you look at the population uh, that's covered by uh, the House bill, age 19 to 55, Medicaid enrollees, um, nationally, only 6% uh, would not qualify for an exemption or are not already working. So again, it's a, a solution in search of a problem. Um, and uh, in terms of, you know, there's no upside uh, in terms of employment. Um, and the Congressional Budget Office actually um, issued a very succinct statement um, saying, uh, you know, as a result of the House bill, people will lose coverage and there will be no impact. And that Echoes the research. Mm -hmm. So this is using taxpayer dollars uh, just to strip more people away from health care that should have it. That's right. That's that's the only thing that that would happen. And the question is just how many people would lose coverage. Can we talk a little bit about what happens if we if we do go into a default in a week or so, if the government stops paying its bills? then what happens? Yeah. So um, it's it's really striking that we're in this predicament. It's um, and, um, you know, the, the U.S. government has never defaulted like this on, on the debt. It's, um, it's un, un, an unprecedented situation, um, an incredibly reckless policy um, that would massively damage our economy. So, so economically, estimates of uh, Moody's Analytics had a recent estimate of over 7 million jobs lost. Um, and in terms of health programs, the, like the immediate impacts on health programs, um, Medicaid, uh, it's again, it's, it's hard to know uh, exactly how this would unfold, but basically the government wouldn't be able to pay its bills. Um, so that means states wouldn't be getting their Medicaid funding. Um, providers wouldn't be getting their reimbursements for the treating Medicare patients. Um, VA funding might be impacted um, as well, presumably would be if, if this went on long enough. Um, and that's so that's going to disrupt payments. Um, if you look at, you know, Medicare alone, Medicare accounted for 26% of all hospital spending in 2021. Uh, adding Medicaid to that, those programs combined accounted for 45% of hospital spending. So in that case, then, you know, how are doctors and hospitals going to respond? Will they continue to provide services when um, they don't know whether, when or whether they're going to get paid? Um, there's, so there's absolutely implications for people's health, for enrollees' health immediately. And then even in the long run, if it's eventually resolved, um, is this going to impact whether providers want to take on Medicaid and Medicare patients? Uh, they've had a situation where they don't get paid. Um, Medicaid also already has relatively low provider reimbursement rates. So that's a concern as well. Because once this happens once, it could happen again, and everyone will take that into consideration? Yeah, that's right. That's that's the danger. So uh, I, I think it's important to make sure our audience understands that, that you know, the government pays people directly when you get your Social Security checks in the mail. But the government also funds so much infrastructure that people rely on. And then what happens when those checks don't go out? Like you mentioned, when hospitals and providers don't get their Medicare payments on the back end. Uh, so I guess we'll see what happens if, if this happens over the next few weeks, uh, you know, and we, we might see things get progressively worse as uh, money runs out in various parts of our system. 
Yeah. I mean, I'm really hoping that we don't see what happens, <laughs> but um, I, there's not much time right now. Um, it, June 1st is, is the uh, estimated date, um, what they call the X date. And, and it takes Congress a while to, um, to get, go through the process and, and pass a bill. So we're really at crunch time the next few days. Um, we'll have to see what happens. Um, in, in 2011, you saw that there was no default, but even getting within a week of default um, was a huge blow just to the stock market. Um, I think it was a 20% drop and, and the U.S. got downgraded by Standard & Poor's. Um, so a lot of people lost uh, money already in just the threat of default um, through higher interest rates and borrowing costs. And um, you already see some, uh, actually for a long time, we've seen already uh, activity in the financial markets that, that show that people are really genuinely worried about this. And I hope it doesn't come to the point where we actually. So what would you recommend people hearing this, watching this should do? Uh, should they contact their representatives and their senators and tell them to uh, vote to stop the default crisis? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so people should raise awareness, contact their elected officials. Um, as I said, we're at crunch time and uh, it's really imperative that we raise the debt ceiling now um, without attaching policies that would themselves are millions of people uh, and take away health care and food that people need. Um, and, and when it comes to work requirements, um, it's also important to push not only against work requirements uh, for Medicaid, but also for other programs um, like expanding work requirements in SNAP and TANF, because these programs also have impacts, big impacts on people's health as well. Um, as, as would cuts to discretionary spending. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Gideon. Uh, and should people find the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities on social media to, to find out what's happening in this default fight? Yes, yes. We, many of us have Twitter accounts um, and the Center uh, on Budget and Policy Priorities also has its own Twitter account. And then we also, of course, we have our webpage where we come out with uh, briefs and, and policy reports regularly. So, Well, thank you for joining us. Thank you, everyone, for uh, watching at home. Please keep calling and texting in your questions, and we'll answer them in future episodes. And again, this is Care Talk.